Um, <clears throat> that's a, kind of a strange word while we were worshiping as well. And all I got was cyst. And I don't know if anybody here is dealing with any kind of a cyst. If someone watching maybe may have one, but I just want to pray now. I don't want, you don't have to acknowledge it. Um, but if you want to, uh, you know, tell me later, that's fine. But So, Father, right now in the name of Jesus, I just command that cyst to go. Command that it would shrink to nothing and just pass out of the body naturally. We give you praise and thanks, Father, as a healer. And rejoice in the healing of this particular condition. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before praying for our offering today, I wanted to uh, share a story that I read about um, Coach Dean Smith. Now, about six years ago, Dean Smith, who was the coach for years, decades actually, f of uh, North, the North Carolina Tar Heels, passed away. It was in February of uh, 2015. And Coach Smith was evidently a very kind and a generous man, and all his players really loved him. Um, but even they were surprised with what happened shortly after he passed away. Every one of the 175 lettermen who played for Coach Smith received a check from his estate for $200 with instructions to spend it on a dinner out, compliments of Coach Dean Smith. Now think about that for just a second. One of his players, you may or may not remember, was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is worth about $2.1 billion, okay? And Michael Jordan gets a check for $200 to go have a dinner out. And I would wager that it may have been one of the most meaningful gifts that he ever got. See, what would touch somebody like Jordan's heart is not the size of the gift, but rather the love with which it was given. The gift mattered because of the giver's heart. And in Luke 21, there's a famous story that's known as the widow's mite. And uh, as Jesus was watching, this poor widow comes into the temple and she drops two small coins into the collection box. Now, clearly, she didn't give a large gift. In fact, much like Coach Smith, it wasn't very much at all. But it was not the size of the gift that mattered to God. What mattered was the size of the sacrifice and the size of the loving heart with which this poor woman gave. There was a letter accompanying Coach Smith's check. It read, each player was important to Coach Smith and when he prepared his estate plan, Coach wanted to reach out to each of his lettermen. Coach Smith's players were important to him. And you're important to God. And if you give out of a sacrificial and loving heart, only when we get to heaven will you realize just how important your gift was to God and to his church. And so for all of those here and those who are watching online, I just ask you to join us as we pray uh, for our weekly offering. Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that we can always trust in you. You are an abundant God, and out of your great love and mercy, you have given us so much. 
And so as an act of our heartfelt gratitude, we give you our tithes and offerings. With them, we worship you and acknowledge your blessings upon us. Please now take them and use them for your kingdom and your glory. Extend and multiply their reach and their influence. And may they be a great blessing to many. We ask this now in the mighty and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as you probably know, today's the third Sunday of Advent. And the uh, traditional theme for this Sunday is joy. So as I now am going to light the first, second, and third candles of our Advent wreath, signifying hope, which was week one, peace, which was week two, and now joy, um, I'd like you to watch a short video on today's theme. Probably, uh, if you've had kids or if you have grandkids, you probably are familiar with this book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Well, I've just come through what a lot of people might describe as a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad week. <laughs> Allow me to elaborate. On Monday, my wife was cooking dinner, and as... Our kitchen filled with smoke, we seemed to discover that our exhaust fan wasn't working like it was supposed to. On Tuesday, I went to the dentist because a tooth had been bothering me and I ended up having a root canal. On Wednesday, we discovered that our house had no water. And so I suspected that my well pump had failed. On Thursday, the well technician confirmed my suspicion, and I got to write a check for a new pump. On Friday, the water stopped again. And so after calling the technician, I had to crawl under the house and manually recycle the water filter, which had gotten clogged up with all of the sludge that was accompanied uh, the new pump's installation. On Saturday, I had to recycle the filter multiple times. Now this is me crawling under the house, not the easiest thing in the world for a man my size to do, multiple times having to crawl over to where this filter was. 
And as if that wasn't enough, I also got to approve estimates to replace our water tank, which needed to be upgraded as a result of the new pump, and our water heater, which we found out was 31 years old. Not a bad, can't complain a lot about that. That's pretty good service for a water uh, heater. Now, so far today has been good, but it's still early. Now, for a lot of people, that kind of week would have sent them into a tailspin. But I can honestly say that despite all of the negative things that happened, I remain joyful. How is that possible? Well, I think it's possible because we consistently confuse biblical joy with happiness. And I think this difference was particularly well explained by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now, Dr. Jones was a Welsh Protestant minister. He was a medical doctor as well. And he was very influential in the British evangelical movement. He was also the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. And Dr. Jones wrote this. He said, What is important in any definition that we may give of New Testament joy is that we do not go to a dictionary we go to the New Testament instead. This is something quite peculiar which cannot be explained. It is a quality which belongs to the Christian life in its essence. So that in our definition of joy, we must be very careful that it conforms to what we see in our Lord. The world has never seen anyone who knew joy as our Lord knew it, and yet... He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So our definition of joy must somehow correspond to that. Joy is something deep and profound, something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. The only, there is only one thing that can give true joy, and that is contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Jones says, he satisfies my mind, he satisfies my emotion, he satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in him I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, based on my personal observation seems that very few people, even Christians, seem to experience that joy. They are either prone to let the world and their circumstances dictate their state of mind, or, as I said a moment ago, they confuse biblical joy and happiness, and those two are just simply not the same. At the very beginning of his physical life, Jesus, even then, produced a joyful response in people. And so the story we are looking at today is, I would imagine, a very familiar one for most Christians, and especially anyone who goes to church around Christmas time. It's the story of Mary traveling to visit her older cousin, Elizabeth, and it's found in Luke chapter 1. So I'm going to put, some, uh, put the slides up, but you can follow along on Bible, however uh, you read it. So Luke 1, starting in verse 39. 
A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, my baby, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. So if we sort of look at this, Mary, you know, Mary is just a few days, as the scripture reads, from this visitation that she had with an angel telling her that she was pregnant with this baby from the Holy Spirit. And so one of the very first things she does is to rush off and to, to go tell her, uh, her cousin. And so she's pretty excited about it, and therefore she goes, you know, says she goes quickly. So Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house, and both Elizabeth and Elizabeth's baby hear something in Mary's voice and react to it. And so the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, and she cries out to Mary. And what's fascinating is that Elizabeth then speaks prophetically because nowhere does it indicate that anyone had told her about Mary. In fact, it's hard to imagine anyone could have, right? It's just, very, it's just happened, and so Mary goes almost straight there. Yet, and she not only, and of course, I can't imagine as well that Mary is showing any signs of pregnancy at that point. So, but Elizabeth not only knows that Mary is pregnant, but she knows who the baby will become and that Mary had great faith in the process of how this all happened. And I think more important to the discussion today, she acknowledged that her baby's first response was joy. Now that baby grew up to become John the Baptist, by the way. And as I was thinking about this, it really occurred to me that an unborn baby could experience joy, but really not happiness. See, a baby that's not born yet has no need or desire for happiness. Because in utero, all of its needs are met completely. And I think it equates that that's why material Christmas presents can only produce happiness, while Jesus, who is the ultimate Christmas present, can only produce joy. And that's because, you know, you think you want or you need something, and then when that need's met, well, you're happy for a while. But eventually, probably sooner rather than later, all of a sudden you need something else, and the whole cycle just repeats over and over and over again. Clearly the idea here is that Jesus' presence invited, in a manner of speaking, both Elizabeth and her baby to experience joy. And they did. And so what I hope to show you today, and in particular anyone watching or listening who has little or no joy, is that Jesus' presence invites you to experience joy. 
So how does that happen? How, if that invitation is extended to us, then how do we respond in order to experience joy? And I'm going to I'm going to go through I'm going to go through these things pretty quickly and not spend a lot of time on each one because I think they're fairly self-explanatory. I'll give you scriptures that you can research if you want to go look in more depth. But you can accept that invitation to joy, I think, in at least six ways. Surrendering your, surrendering your trials to God, doing what Jesus said, committing to fellowship with other believers, bringing people to Jesus, discipling others, and giving sacrificially. All right, let's press into these a little bit. So the first way is this idea of surrendering your trials to God, and that comes from 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Now that says... Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the, what? Wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Simply put, they had fiery trials then, 2,000 some odd laters, Years later, we have fiery trials today. And according to Peter, Peter, it would be strange if we had no trials. Right? He says there's no, no reason to be surprised at this. And so, being able to have joy in suffering is not some trick of the mind. It's not some mental thing that you uh, do to yourself. Suffering has meaning because it puts us into a deeper relationship with Jesus. And as this occurs, our level of trust in the wisdom and the care that he has for our lives naturally increases. And so because of that, we're able to rejoice. Joy, in its most sublime meaning, is a deep confidence that God's in control. That God is in control of every area of our lives, even the painful ones. And so the fullness of joy comes from this deep sense of the presence of God in a person's life. And so our first invitation to joy occurs when our pain drives us to depend solely on God and we surrender everything to him. Second, we can accept that invitation by doing what Jesus said. John 15, 11 is the verse here. And it says, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Well, what are these things? What are these things he's referring to? Well, if you read through the entire section that this verse comes from, he's talking about remaining in his love by obeying his commandments. And what commandments he's referring to? Well, verse 12, the, the immediately following verse says, This is my commandment. Love each other the same way I have loved you. Now, would you not agree that the world is in pretty short supply of love right now? See, as I read the newspaper, it seems that people can no longer just simply share a disagreement and remain friends. Everybody has to go for the other person's jugular, right? As in, if you don't agree with me, you're not only wrong, but you're also a terrible person, and you have dandruff, and your mother wears army boots. You know, that, that, 
that phrase came up to me and I was like, I wonder what that means. I, I've heard that, you know, as long as I've been around and I was like, I was, never really thought it made a whole lot of sense. It's like, what? Well, I looked it up. And what it means is that in World War II, there were ladies of a, of a particular trade that followed the army around, and they wore combat boots. So you do the math. So essentially, if you say that, you understand what you're calling someone's mother. Okay. Enough of the cultural education for now. So simply put, you can accept Jesus' invitation to joy simply by doing what he tells you to do, which is to love others. To love others. You accept his invitation to joy by committing to fellowship with other, with other believers. John, 1 John 1, 3 through 4. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. See, common experience and common beliefs are powerful bonding agents. Right? You can go to a party and you know, maybe you don't know a lot of the people there, but as soon as you discover that you, sh you, know, you and someone else share a love of whatever, fishing, man, you're off to the races, right? Talking about fishing. You know, and it's, so it's that commonality that really can bind us together. And so because we all have faith in Jesus and he's brought us to his father, we all belong to the same family. So we all have the same privilege as the apostles and we are allowed to address him in the most intimate terms possible. We're able to use the family name Abba, Daddy, to describe our dear father. And because we belong to him, we belong to each other. And so without that fellowship with the Father, there can be no lasting earthly unity. See, that's why any attempt to cobble together some sort of man-made unity between groups of professing Christians on any foundation other than God's revealed truth in Scripture, the word of life, that is the gospel, are bound to fail. It's got to have that foundation. And so fundamental gospel unity already exists between those who fellowship, whose fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Now, <clears throat> it's difficult for us all to have fellowship right now. And I understand that. And so I just encourage all of you to continue to use the tools that we have at our disposal to use Zoom or Facebook Live or whatever means you have of staying connected to one another because it's important and it will increase your joy. Nothing can sap your joy faster than isolation. And so stay plugged in, however it is that you need to do that or that you have to do that. All right. Fourth, we can accept Jesus' invitation to joy simply by bringing people to him. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20 <clears throat> says this, After all, what gives us hope and joy 
And what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. So this is Paul writing to the, Th the Thessalonians, and he's saying that the ultimate reward for his ministry wasn't money, it wasn't prestige, it wasn't fame, but it was the new believers whose lives had been changed by God through the preaching, through his preaching of the gospel. It's why he longed to come to see them. And so, you know, no matter what ministry you, you believe God has given you, the highest and greatest reward and greatest joy you can have should be in bringing people to Christ. Scripture says that heaven rejoices when a sinner repents and returns to God. You can have a share in that joy when you simply bring someone into God's family. Fifth, we can have joy when we disciple others. Third, th third John verse 4. I always get this messed up because there's only one chapter. If I could have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following the truth. John wrote of his children because he was the spiritual father to many, probably the, the man named Gaius who he refers to in this particular letter. And to follow the truth simply means to living it out by expressing it in one's behavior. Gaius was obviously doing this, and, and so John had no greater joy than to see it happen in the life of one of his spiritual children. So the question before you is, do you have any spiritual children? And so if you are lacking joy in some way, perhaps you could find someone to guide in their Christian walk the very same way that Paul did for Timothy and John did for Gaius and others. And finally, you can accept an invitation to joy by giving sacrificially. 2 Corinthians 8.2 says, They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. Now, Paul's referring to the church in Macedonia in this letter. And what he's saying is that although the Macedonians had experienced a great deal of affliction and extreme poverty, they were filled with this abundant joy because they possessed the message of salvation and they had faith in God. And so their joy overflowed in this wealth of generosity. And so they considered their monetary gifts to the Jerusalem Christians, which is what, who Paul was trying to collect money for, as a small token of their appreciation to God for their eternal salvation. We've said this before, but God doesn't want gifts that are given grudgingly. And I mean, there's certainly no joy in that. Instead, he wants his people to give as the Macedonian church did, out of a dedication to Jesus, out of a love for fellow believers, and for the joy of helping those people who are really in need. <clears throat> now many of you know that I have three little granddaughters. Joanna, that's not them. Um, 
Joanna, Madison, and Leah are the three. Now, Madison, or Maddie as we call her, is at our house every Monday and Tuesday. Because uh, those are the days that her Nana takes care of her. And I just kind of pitch in when I'm needed and go back and play with her when I have a moment. So Maddie's about 16 months old. She's been walking pretty well for about two months. And so while she spends most of her day in, in this back room that uh, they just kind of hang out in, occasionally she gets a supervised run of our entire downstairs. Supervised. Just in case my son and daughter-in-law are listening. It's definitely supervised. So one of the things that um, Nana got for her granddaughters to play with is this as you see on the screen, this Fisher-Price nativity set. And that's set up in our living room, and that's not the room that they spend most of their day in. And as you can see, I, I counted, I think there's about a dozen or so figurines in this set. You've got the wise men, you've got animals, you've got Jesus, Mary, and Joseph there in the little manger. And what was fascinating was that when Maddie first encountered this set, when she you know, came into the room and she saw it there, and I'm not making this up, she picked up Jesus, took him out of the manger, and started carrying him around the house. Now this went on for about two days. Put him back to where he was, all the other figures are there. She would go up, reach in, pick up Jesus, and... Um, take off into our dining room and kitchen. And so as I watched the joy that my granddaughter had in, in just in carrying Jesus around, it made me think about another young girl who carried Jesus, his mom, Mary. See, Mary carried Jesus around with her too. And he brought joy not only to her, but to Zechariah in Elizabeth's house and, and the yet as, as yet unborn John the Baptist. And who knows what other things happened as she went through her pregnancy. And so thinking about my granddaughter Maddie carrying Jesus and thinking about Mary physically carrying Jesus also led me to think about how all of us carry Jesus. See, Jesus himself tells us, and the Apostle Paul affirms it multiple times, that he lives in us. And if he's living in you, and if you are truly carrying him around with you wherever you go, that means that you have an ever-present invitation to joy. And so joy in this instance, like so much of the Christian life, hinges on a choice. Do you accept the invitation or not? What box do you check on your RSVP a life of joy. Let's pray.
Father, I know this time of year can be a struggle for so many people. Because there are events that happen that are not pleasant, that happen around this time of year, and so they tend to stand out in our minds. Or we're going through this family-oriented time of year and there's a family member who's missing. And Lord, it can be tough <clears throat> to have joy in those times. But it is possible. Jesus demonstrated it. He lived it. And he's inviting us to do the very same thing. What it amounts to in almost all of these cases that I have laid out today is to think about somebody other than yourself. That joy seems to come when we put others before ourselves. So, Father, I pray that you would imprint this message on all of us. That as we go through this time when all of us are richly blessed by friends and family and presents and all of the trappings that go along with this holiday season, that you would help us to mindfully put others before our, ourselves. That you would give us the boldness, perhaps, to share our faith with someone who really needs to hear it. To be a mentor to a newer Christian that could use guidance. to truly take to heart the idea that you are the one who's in control. Doesn't matter who's president, doesn't matter who's in the government. Ultimately, we know it's your government that wins. And that's where our joy comes from. So, Father, just help us to truly experience that joy. And now let us remember what the source of that joy is. That we can have that joy because of the sacrifice that Jesus made for all of us. It's the sacrifice that we remember now in the sacrament of Holy Communion. And so we recall now that on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this all of you and eat. For this is my body given for you. And then when the supper was over, he took the cup 
And again, he gave you thanks and praise. And this cup he gave as well to his disciples, and he said, take this, all of you, and drink. For this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Blood that was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. And so whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, do so and remember me. So Father, I ask that you would bless this simple meal of bread and juice, that you would make it to be for us your body and your blood, that you would consecrate it now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the body of Jesus given for you. And the blood of Jesus shed for you. Amen.